Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. of the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Before we get started today, I wanted to mention that Nate, me, and Lindsay, and Dane Brugler are going to be doing a live show the night of round one. So that is April 29th. We're going to come to you guys starting the middle of the first round after the top 10 is gone, and we're going to talk about what's already happened. We're going to react to some of the picks as they go down, so please come join us for that. You can find that on YouTube. We're going to find it on Twitter. We're going to be blasting it out constantly here over the next couple weeks, so be on the lookout for that. Very, very excited. Nate and I are going to be in person in Chicago doing that, so really looking forward to that. Today's show, really good one for you guys. Mike Reiner from PFF is going to be joining us a little bit later to talk about the top corners in this year's draft. We're going to do some cornerback superlatives as a way to dig into that group. Before we do that, though, very excited to welcome my friend, multi-year NFL veteran, a presence on the ESPN matchup show that is completely essential viewing for any good football fan, Matt Bowen. Matt, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Robert. How are you? I'm doing awesome. I'm excited. We are getting closer and closer to the draft. I know you guys are doing your first draft special for a matchup relatively soon, right? Yeah, our first one is uh, this Wednesday night, uh, 9 Eastern, ESPN 2, and then we'll be back during draft week for a second one, which will be that Tuesday night of the draft week. I think around the same time, prime time on ESPN 2. So we're excited about it. You know, we take a different approach there, Robert. We look more at player traits and how they fit in today's NFL schemes, whether offense or defense, and especially at the quarterback position. But our breakdown pieces are more focused on the traits and what they can be in an NFL scheme passing game or a split safety defense on that side of the football. So it's, it's fun to do. And I'll actually be back in studio for the first time in, you know, a year and a half. It's exciting. You know, back yeah. We're doing the same thing. We're doing a live draft show on draft night of round one. And I cannot wait to actually sit down and have somebody next to me and have a conversation about football. But like you mentioned, that's what you guys do on the show. It's projecting these guys through a schematic lens. So when I was just behind the curtain a little bit about a month ago, and I was planning all the draft shows, one of the first ones on my list was scheme fits with Matt Bone. Like I just knew I wanted to have this conversation with you because I love the show. I've watched it for years. I've communicated that to you and to Greg and to Sal even. And we had a scheme show earlier this year. In the fall, we went down your our favorite offensive and defensive play callers, and we had a great time doing it. So I definitely wanted to have this conversation with you because I think that it's a really important way to think about these guys. It's a necessary way to understand, all right, how does this actually project? Beyond what we saw them do in college, how does it fit through a schematic lens. So I just want to talk about that process in general. So as you're watching these guys and you're thinking about it through that kind of filter, what are the difficulties of that? Because you're having to do some imagining, I would assume, because what they're doing in college isn't necessarily what they're going to be doing in the NFL. So as you're trying to make these projections, what are the things that you're trying to identify to give you the best sense of it moving forward? I think you have to start with the traits, right? Or the physical tools of the player. 
and how those traits project, like you just said. I think an example is Justin Fields, a quarterback from Ohio State. He reminds me a lot of Justin Herbert coming out of Oregon in terms of the physical tools, the high-level traits, in terms of their arm talent, their mobility, the way they can be schemed as runners, their physical element they both bring inside and outside of the pocket. And I have to say, okay, how does that project to the NFL, Robert? Well, looked at a heavily schemed passing game. Because that's what we saw from Herbert last year with the Chargers. You know, play action concepts, attack the intermediate windows, get them on the edge with boot. And when you take your vertical throws down the field, you scheme those shot plays over the top. They either occupy defenders down the field, create third-level windows, or create schemed one-on-ones outside the numbers. So got Justin Fields, regardless of the offense he played in at Ohio State. And look, I like the offense he played in at Ohio State. I think there was some high-level processing involved in terms of wide receivers, the depth they break at, the conversions they can make with, within the route stem. And that offense will project more to the NFL in terms of some of the concepts. But taking those vertical concepts from Ohio State, now meshing them with more of a scheme than NFL pass game, getting them under center more, getting them on the move more, that's how we try to project for. But eventually, Robert, it still comes back to the traits of the player. So I think that's so important. I had this discussion with one of our guys at Matchup. And the greatest things for me working at Matchup is a graduate course of football. Mm-hmm. We have former scouts in the building, former coaches at the pro and college level. I've learned so much. And I have a tendency from coaching at the high school level at IC Catholic is that I look at it through a coaching lens too much. Saying, what can he do in this system? And, and then I've always been not corrected to saying, hey, you look at the traits first. What can he do? Even if he hasn't played cover two, or let's say, for example, we're talking about defensive back, does he have the ability to do it? Can he open his hips and get to depth? Does he have good transition speed to drive top down the football? Does he have enough range to get off the numbers? Based on what you see, maybe he played in the post at the college level. Can he do those things within an NFL scheme? So again, it goes back to focusing on those traits and how they project. So that that was my other question. Do you feel like it can be too limiting sometimes to talk about it in this way? Say, all right, he fits this or he fits that because of what I've seen him do. Do you think that there are teams that probably don't have enough imagination as they're looking at some of these guys? And do you think that overall we're too quick to say, well, I haven't seen him do that, so I have doubts about whether he can. I think I think you answered right there. I think we're too quick saying we haven't seen him do it enough. And if you can do it once, even if you see it once on film, I mean, he has the ability to do it. Now you're going to have to coach him. That's the next thing about We don't talk about that enough. You have to coach him. I mean, if you have a tight end who's a, you know, a pass game target who isn't a high-end blocker, can you teach him to be a blocker? Sure you can. Sure. You know, if you have someone that has – the man coverage traits, you know, the length, the, the, the size outside, the numbers, the ability to open his hips, track the ball and locate, but there's a certain area of game of his game that need, needs to be corrected. Can you coach that? Sure, you can. Now, there's certain situations. I was looking at this player the other day, and obviously I'm an Iowa grad, but I am going to be biased. Uh, Davion Nixon <laughs> from Iowa is a defensive tackle. In that situation, Davion Nixon is best as a one-gap penetrator. Guy can, he's got upfield juice, you know, to create disruption. You don't want to make him a two-gap player in the NFL, right? You don't want to do something like that. If you're a zone team, okay, you don't want heavy movers on the offensive line. That's more of a fit for a gap or a power team. You know, there's certain things like that, but there's also positions where I think, uh, you know, I don't want to use the term scheme transcendent, but that they can fit in most offenses or most defenses in the NFL. Wide receiver for one. You know, with today's passing game, I don't think you need to be an ultra-defined route runner right now. I don't. Yeah. Well, we, we have ultra-defined route runners we study all the time. A guy like a Keenan Allen, first player jumps to mind, Devontae Adams. But with the amount of overs and crossers we see, can you get free from the line of scrimmage and use your speed? 
right, to attack an open window. All right, there's, there's wide receivers in this draft class that can do that. Running backs, I think there are also some critical factors in the running back position. One, the north-south burst, short area speed, as I like to call it. The ability to make people miss whether running through them or running around them. The ability to catch the ball in the backfield. I think running backs have natural traits that are developed starting at the high school level. Those traits don't change. But if you have those three critical factors, you can play and you know produce and function in most NFL offenses. And quarterbacks are obviously a little different, right? Our quarterback is obviously a little of different course. because how the position has changed so much with the movement concepts, with the ability to throw off schedule or use your second reaction ability. A lot of the quarterbacks in this class have that. You know, but some still have to be schemed. And look, every quarterback, we get in this discussion too much, Robert, every quarterback has to be schemed. You don't just go out there and play seven on seven. It's just not how it works. Every quarterback has to be schemed. A great example is Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. You know, the MVP of the National Football League who plays in a heavily schemed offense with defined throws. A lot of play action, a lot of pre-snap movement, creating matchups, creating windows. He can routinely hit those throws from the pocket. But what he gives you off of that is that high-level second reaction ability, the ability to throw from off-platform, and the ability to take the one-on-ones wherever he wants to because he can throw with accuracy and location. So the, I, all of that is so interesting, and I think the receiver point is really is cool, and we've talked about that a lot. So if you were talking about, let's say just within a Shanahan-based offense, so we're talking, I don't know, six to ten teams now have run some version of it. Right. Would you say your most important trait within that offense now is ability after the catch. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be running a lot of drift routes or a lot of just in-breaking routes into space, it's less important that you can be a route runner and more important of, all right, if you look like A.J. Brown and you move with him after with the ball in your hands, mm-hmm. that now becomes the most, most important trait. So I think that's part of what's interesting is not only are what, what we're asking of players is changing, but just the types of aspects that you'd want for specific offenses is changing as certain schemes as certain offensive and defensive systems become more prevalent around the league. Yeah, I would agree. And and if you look at this draft class, Robert, there's a group of wide receivers that Greg Cosell and I have called motion movement receivers, you know, receivers that might have to be schemed to get off the line of scrimmage. That's fine. You you can do that. You can do that. Reach that movement. You can do a stack bunch. There's ways to get guys clean off the line of scrimmage. But what they bring to you is that catch and run ability in space. They have dynamic traits. They have ball carrier vision where you can manufacture or scheme touches for them on jet and fly sweeps, reverses, screens, backfield alignments. Call them whatever you want in terms of their position, but they are dynamic playmakers within your offense that can be schemed off the line of scrimmage. And then when they get the ball in space, like you're talking about, whether a quick glance route off an RPO, uh, a deep dig route, which is 12 to 15 yards, that's going to break it. They can produce after the catch. And what you're also creating there, Robert, is more high percentage throws for your quarterback. And that's the name of the game right now at every level. But we're talking about high school, college, and the pros. You want to get high percentage throws for your quarterback and get the ball into the hands of your playmakers. There's a group in this class, you know, really starting with Jalen Waddle, Elijah Moore, Kadarius Tony, Rondale Moore, guys that are electric after the catch that you can scheme over. Looking at all of those ways that teams are being schemed, first of all, how different would you say just the overall help that offensive coaching staffs are giving their quarterbacks and their receivers now compares to what it was like when you were playing. How much more of a leg up do offensive coaches give their guys in this era? I, I think there, there is more of an advantage. Now, I, I was lucky enough to play in St. Louis my rookie season with Mike Martz and his offense. And I think that there you offense go. was ahead. You might have a little skewed opinion of it then. <laughs> right, but that offense was ahead of its time. Sure. In terms of the, the motion, the movement, 
the matchups they created using the running back out of the backfield with Marshall Falk and Kurt Warner's ability to throw with anticipation location almost every single time. But it has changed just because personnel has changed. You know, back when I first started, it was a lot of 21 personnel, two running backs, mm-hmm. one tight end. You didn't have as many dynamic weapons as a tight end position as obviously you do now. More 20 personnel. I was talking with someone the other day, 20 personnel is two backs, a lot of times shotgun split backs with three wide receivers. That was really coming off the Houston Oilers and that run and shoot offense back in the day. Um, but the game has changed. It's faster and there's much more pre-snap movement and misdirection post-snap in today's NFL that is really taxing the eyes of defenders, creating matchup advantages, creating blocking angles for your run game, and also the movement with the quarterback position. Just the movement. I remember, okay, so I went to Iowa, Robert as a quarterback, and it didn't last long, but I went there. <laughs> I was taking a seven-step drop from under center and backpedaling. That's how our drops were under Coach Aiden Fry. We backpedaled out. So you take all that time to get to the top of the drop. Then you plant your foot. Then you got to go through your progressions, which I couldn't do because I just pulled the ball down and run. But anyway, it, it was so different. When do you see that now? Oh, never. It's, it's so funny watching the backpedal drops in old, in old tape. It looks right. so silly. It's like an old-timey boxer. Like That's how strange it looks compared to what the game looks like now. Right. And, and when I first got in the league, you still had empty formations with the quarterback under center, right, and taking the drop from there. It's just the ball is coming out so much faster now. And the quick game is so much more important too, Robert. That's another thing with RPOs. You know, a quarterback like Zach Wilson, who can read it out quickly and throw it without fear. And the ball mechanics he has in getting that football out. Look at Aaron Rodgers when he throws RPOs. There is no mesh point. That ball is out immediately. Yeah. Either he's counting the numbers or he's reading the conflict and that ball is out immediately. Again, that goes back to we're talking about the wide receiver position. Getting guys open, balls coming out faster. But what you still see, and I think this is important, you still see max protection. You still see scheme vertical throws down the field. We, see, we saw it all the time from Tennessee. Last year, last couple of years with Ryan Tannehill, you saw it with Justin Herbert. You see it from Kyle Shanahan. You do see it in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers. When they want to max up and take their shots, they still do that. When you were, and I'm sure some people would say, well, how different could it be? And you pointed out a couple of really good examples, offensive linemen, zone versus gap scheme, things like that. I'm sure there are some people who ask, how different could these schemes be? If you can play in one, can you play in most of them? So I wanted to ask you, when you were bouncing around between a couple of different teams, were there gaps in those schemes that you felt really comfortable running one and much less comfortable running another? Even within your position, did you feel like there were drastic changes between certain kinds of defenses in terms of your own comfort level? I do think so. You know, and I was lucky enough to play in pro NFL schemes that catered more to my ability because I didn't have much. So uh, <laughs> like when my last year in Buffalo, okay, Perry Fuel was our defense coordinator. Perry used to work on a Lovey Smith here in Chicago. Of a course. Lot of Tampa too. A lot of Tampa too, where I could stay on top and drive top down in the football. Didn't get exposed. Now the difference was when Greg Williams, well, Steve Spurrier was my first coach in Washington. And when Steve moved on, Joe Gibbs came back. And when Greg Williams was our defense coordinator, we were pressure heavy defense. And there were situations where I had, I used the term cover down because as a safety, and let's just say this now, it's a safety because we, we talk about this all the time through the draft process. Safeties do have coverage trends, but the ability to cover down is much different than playing Cole Beasley on third and two to six, right? Okay, it's a much different matchup. So if I had to cover down, it was always off of pressure. I knew the football had to come out because if it didn't, I was going to get beat. But most of the time when I was with Greg, I remember our first game we played Tampa at FedEx Field. And I blitzed 15 times. 
15. <laughs> Myself, 15 times. Okay, so Greg, should be on Greg Williams' tombstone one day. Matt Bowen puts 15 times in one game. But Greg knew what I could do and what I couldn't do. So he didn't put me in those positions where I can get um, stuck in a matchup down the field where, you know, I didn't have the high-end traits to compete with some of the NFL wide receivers. So what do you do with a guy like that? You put him in the box versus a run game. You play him in cover two, and you blitz him. You blitz him all day because then it takes those coverage responsibilities away. To answer your question in a roundabout way, I was lucky, but there were certain situations. I remember we were playing uh, the 49ers. This was 2002 when I was with Green Bay. We had a really good football team. I thought it was a Super Bowl team. We got knocked out by Michael Vick and the Falcons in the wildcard round. But we're playing at San Francisco, and there's a little confusion coming out of the huddle. And one of the safeties is supposed to go to T.O. Well, I went to T.O., and that's a problem. Okay, we're sort of playing <laughs> safety quarters when T.O. was in the slot. I'm thinking, um, what are we going to do here? It's essentially man coverage with you on Terrell Owens in that Basically moment. what quarters yeah. is, right? Because if number yeah. two releases vertical, that's your guy. And Garcia got flushed out of the pocket and, and had to move uh, opposite of me. But I remember thinking before the snap, we're going to lose this football game because this matchup is not a positive for you at all. <laughs> How about guys not even in, even not even on your team or in your orbit? Do you remember a couple guys, even in this era or in yours, that you saw just in the wrong scheme, that their career fizzled out because they just weren't in the right circumstances? Because I'm sure it does happen. And I just wonder if there's a couple guys that stick out in your mind. Um, I'm not sure if there's a couple guys specifically, Robert, but you always have to look at quarterbacks. Okay. I think okay. that's where this discussion goes is to look at quarterbacks. This is going to happen this year, too. It happens every year. You know, the quarterbacks get, you know, why do quarterbacks fail? It's not because of the talent level. You're being drafted, especially a first round. If you're a first round NFL draft pick, you have high end traits, high end talent. There's no question about it. The system means everything. Obviously, the talent around you means a lot, too. Obviously, protection up front, talent, the skill positions, we understand that. But what are they asking the quarterback to do? You know, what are they asking the quarterback to do pre and post snap? I think that's a lot of times why you see quarterbacks bust in the NFL. One, the supporting cast doesn't match the talent they have to go again week in and week out in the NFL. But also, what are they asked to do within the offensive system? Are you playing to their talent? Or are you trying to make them something that they're not? And I think that's the number one thing in coaching. It is at any level, coach for your players. Okay, don't coach a system. Our systems come and go. You can adapt your system. That's why I brought up Zach Wilson. And we assume Zach Wilson is going to go number two to the New York Jets. There needs to be RPOs in that system. There needs to be movement in that system. You need to get him to the edge of the pocket to utilize his traits as a thrower and his ability to play off schedule at times. Those things need to be in your offense. In addition to what he has to do as a pro quarterback, because that's never going to change. As much as we talk about these traits, Robert, like I brought up, with making throws in the pocket with Aaron Rodgers. If you can't make the routine throws and throw from the pocket, then you are going to be a bust. It's as simple as that. You have to do those things. You have to check that list first before we get to the high-end traits that can be schemed. But once you get to those traits, if you're not scheming them as a coach, you're not doing your job. So uh, that's a really interesting point with the coaching because that was one of my questions. And we talk about scheme fit. How much would the scheme be tailored to players in a given year? Like what percentage do you think was static and what percentage ends up getting molded around the talent in the building? Because that makes scheme fit kind of a fluid a fluid concept, right? Because if the scheme can change with the players, then you're going to be able to fit more players within the scheme. I agree with that. And I think that one of the first places you look for is a secondary. You know, if you're a zone-heavy team or a man-heavy team. Everyone wants to play man, Robert. Everyone does because man gives you advantage, especially in third down situations, you know, third and medium, 
and inside the red zone. You want to play man in those situations because you eliminate windows. You challenge wide receivers off the line of scrimmage. You disrupt the timing and the flow of the offense. But you have to have those guys to do that, right? We understand that. You have to draft those guys at the sign as free agents. You have to dub them within your system. I think it's the first thing is you want to be a man-heavy defense. You don't have the talent. We've seen it all year. Man defense, I think, is very easy to scheme up in the NFL. We talked during the season. Brian Dable in Buffalo is a prime example. How many times Miami game is Allen? a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. How many times did Josh Allen light up man coverage this year? Because they schemed it, right? And man coverage, you know, it's not just the ability to play man coverage. It's a pre- and post-snap communication from a secondary perspective. Being able to play off picks and rubs. Being able to play motion pre-snap from two-by-two two to three-by-one. Now it's three-by-one bunch. Ball's about to be snapped. Do you have a plan? What is your plan? Are you going to jam the point man and pass off the two guys off the ball? There's different things you could do there. But you have to have those players that are highly intelligent, high football intelligence, plus the man traits within your system to do that. If you're a zone defense and you don't have speed at the second level, I got bad news for you. Right? <laughs> I got really bad news for you because NFL quarterbacks will light that up. They'll anticipate the window. They'll put it there every time. You need guys with speed. You need guys with length at the second level that can muddy or close those throwing windows. And you need to post safety. That's one of the hardest things to find right now, Robert, is a post safety. If you went through every depth chart in the NFL right now and, and said, who are the true rangy ball hawking post safeties in the NFL? There's not that many. Jesse Bates, end of list. Yeah, it's, it's a hard position to play. And I think that's why you're now seeing more of a shift to split safety coverages. One, that the reason for that is to limit explosive plays down the field. If you play single high against Kansas City, it's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long day. This is how it is because Andy Reid will scheme up cover three all day long. And it used to be cover three. That was the thing. Remember, because of the Seattle Seahawks defenses. That was the personnel that fit in that scheme. Not many teams have that ability that Seattle did. Now you're seeing more quarters, more cover two and cover six, which is quarter, quarter, half. Because you can eliminate verticals, stay on top of those verticals down the field. And also with your quarter safeties, you can drive and close the middle of the field, all those in-breakers and crossers and overs we were just talking about. It is the post safety to find. Well, and and those corners, those crossers, and all of those deep middle routes came into vogue in part because teams were playing cover three with that post safety, and that attacks them. So then the reaction to that is more split safety coverages. And now, what's the reaction to that going to be? And that's the whole. That's why this is fun because right. all of it, the, the cycle creates one another. So I think that's why it's really really interesting to look at. I think a really good example of what you're talking about with the man versus zone is what the Giants did this year, right? They come in, Patrick Graham comes from a very defined background that's a lot of cover one, a lot of press man with the Patriots first and then with the Dolphins. Comes to New York, looks around and goes, well, not sure that's going to (laughs) work. And they played a lot of zone and I think their defense was better off for it. But that's the question. Do you have a coaching staff that's going to show that flexibility and say, we're going to do what's best for our players, not what's best for us? You know, how many horror stories have you heard? I've heard plenty, so I'm sure you've heard even more about being in an offensive meeting and somebody says, well, we're going to do this because this is the way that Bill Walsh did it and that's just how it's going to go. I, I just think there's probably less of that now. And I think that that's why, especially on offense, there are just more success stories and more types of players that are succeeding in part because that flexibility and open-mindedness exists in a way it might not have 15 years ago. No, I agree with that. I agree 100%. You know, a team that sticks out, we're talking about that, is the Dallas Cowboys in this draft. Now, you look at mock drafts and we know Mock drafts are not the truth, but Patrick Sertan from the University of Alabama, I think is the number one corner in this class. If he goes to Dallas, what is Dan Quinn going to do? Are they going to be cover three heavy? 
with the top press man corner. They just drafted as number 10 overall pick. Are they going to become, okay, we have uh, a young corner with high-end traits, explosive traits, really, at the position. Transition speed, recovery speed, short area speed, can make plays in the football. We want to put him in more man coverage situations. Doesn't mean he can't play cover three because he will have to. Every defense plays split safety, single high now in terms of the mix of their coverages. But when you have a player like that, are you going to adapt your scheme? When you draft a player with that high level of talent who has those traits, are you going to say, look, we can be a little bit more man heavy now. And that's what's interesting about this because look at the zone teams from last year. If they do target man defenders in the secondary, how are they going to change to accommodate that and really to maximize that talent? If you're playing cover three and you're playing that, just if it's match cover three or whatever, would you be comfortable telling your corners that they can play a style that fits them. If you were still playing cover three, but you he was a little bit tighter to the receiver on the outside, if he was playing a little bit more physically, or would you be comfortable doing that as a defensive coordinator? Because I know there are certain examples, like the Bears under Fangio, I think are really interesting. Yeah. You had Fuller and Mukamara playing the same coverage, but they played it in different ways mm-hmm. because Prince was more comfortable as a press guy where Fuller likes playing off. So do you think that that's dangerous as a defensive play call, or do you think that's a smart way to allow your guys to play in ways that, find, that they find comfortable? No, I think it's the right way to do it. Whether you're talking about technique or technique within the scheme, I think that's about coaching. I'll give you an example, just the high school level where I coach. You know, there's two styles of uh, coming out of your break. There's the bike when you're pedaling fast like you're riding a bike. There's called the T-step when you plant, you know, your back foot and drive downhill. And I don't have a way that I say you have to do it. I always tell my players at the high school level, do what makes you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Do what allows you to play fast. If you want to be more snugged up to wide receivers and line of scrimmage because you do feel you that he can't challenge you vertically. Now you can sit in the break and do it. I think you have to allow that stuff within reason, right? Within reason. Of course. So you still play within the scheme, but yes, you have to. There's no perfect way to play this game. There's no perfect way to coach this game. What you have to do is listen to your players. As I always tell the young kids I coach, I don't get to play in practice. You get to play. I just get to watch. So you're going to be in those game situations. And when you get into a situation where you have a chance to create out of the ball production, do what feels more comfortable, do what allows you to get from point A to point B with speed. So I agree with what you're saying. There are different ways to play coverages, and you have to allow that, in my opinion, especially when you have high-end talent. Another thing about high-end talent, Robert, is sometimes you have to think outside the box, that they can do things. They have what I call uncoachable traits, right, because they are naturally gifted, especially when we're talking about skill positions. They are naturally gifted. Don't try to overcoach them. If they want to play outside of structure a little bit, you allow that. Same with quarterbacks. If they want to play outside of structure a little bit, you allow that at times because they have things you can't coach. You can't take a young player and say, hey, play like Patrick Mahomes. What are we doing? <laughs> you can't do that, right? You can't. So there's a there's a level of coaching involved that at times you have to take a step back, let the player be themselves within the scheme, but understand that they might take more risks or they might use a different technique because they can. So let's get into some specific guys from this class. I want to run down a couple specific positions. But before that, just in a general level, is there anybody that jumps out to you immediately where as soon as you watch them at any position, you already saw them in the uniform? Like one or two guys that just immediately, I see them on this team in this scheme right now. Oh, there's, there's a couple wide receivers. I did a wide receiver fits piece uh, a couple weeks back at ESPN. Uh, one of them is, well, there's two that fit here. And I don't know which one it is, but Rashad Bateman and Terrace Marshall in Baltimore. Okay, obviously there's a need there in Baltimore for a boundary X receiver. But the great thing about Terrace Marshall 
and Rashad Bateman is I think they can be deployed or utilized like Allen Robinson or Michael Thomas because they can play inside in the slot. Because your matchup advantages versus man and zone inside. They both have the ability to run after the kick. They can both stretch the field vertically. And you can scheme them also on deep end breakers. We know Baltimore is more vertical-based pass game off clash with Lamar Jackson. But look at those two receivers, the need at that position too. The need to develop a young receiver within that system and to grow or develop that entire passing game, especially when they get to a postseason stage. Those are two that stand out right there. Another player I keep thinking about, Robert, is running back Trey Summer from Ohio State. I look at him as a professional runner. Okay, he's got contact balance. He's got north-south juice. He can make you miss in the open field. He's got enough top-end speed. We can create explosive plays. And the team I keep thinking about, obviously because of need there, but also the offensive structure is the Atlanta Falcons. This can be a run-heavy offense with play action. We understand that. And I think of Trey Sermon as a guy who can be a volume carrier, kick ball carrier in the pros. And both zone and gaps, he's a really zone scheme when he can get to the edge of the formation, bounce the ball outside, or cut it back inside. Staying with Atlanta is Trey Lance, right? Yeah. Atlanta, I keep coming game. back to it. We talk about it all the time on this show. It almost makes too much sense. Mm-hmm. I can see Trey Lance in that system for sure because of the scheme, Browtree. You know, the vertical shot plays down the field. We saw that consistently on his tape in North Dakota State. His ability to play under center, the boot concepts in North Dakota State. And plus, he gives you an added element because of his dual threat ability. He's a physical ball carrier. And that just, that's more than just running zone read. I mean, you're running quarterback power, quarterback counter quarterback lead down in a low red zone but that's a fit that kind of jumps out and you say this makes a lot of sense the other one i'll say it because i believe it is justin fields with kyle shanahan what about it what aspects to his game do you just think fit well i think one that elevates the entire offense okay yeah. i think it gives that offense more playmaking ability it's one thing to say we can have a quarterback who can throw with anticipation location and kyle's heavily schemed passing game. we understand that but with justin fields i think you get that added element the quarterback run game. I think he brings such a physical element to the football field, both inside and outside the pocket. We're going to break down Justin Fields in the matchup show. I'm going to show a play versus Indiana. A good linebacker creates interior pressure on him, but he's so strong in his lower body that he can break through arm tackles in the pocket. And then he gives you that second reaction ability, both as a runner and a thrower. But again, it's the high-level traits. Think of Kyle Shanahan, the scheme shot plays they take down the field, the intermediate throws, the glance routes off RPOs, the shallows are going to scheme up for him. More high percentage throws with the high-end talent of a player like Justin Fields operating both inside and outside of the pocket. And I'll tell you this, you watched the Ohio State film, there was no question that Justin Fields can process the entire field. Now, will he have to be quicker? Yes, I can say that about Trevor Lawrence, too. Say that about Zach Wilson, too. There's going to be a... Uh, a developmental stage for these young quarterbacks in terms of adapting to NFL speed, understanding that college windows, no matter if you play in the SEC, the Big Ten, they are smaller. The ball needs to come out quicker and on time. You need to see it fast. That comes with reps. Going back to our previous discussion, Robert, what I can't coach with Justin Fields is the size, the arm talent, the mobility, the physical element he brings to the pocket, the ability to play off schedule or second reaction. I can't coach that. Those are natural high-end traits he has. And I'd love to see it. This is me personally. I'd love to see it in a very defined, schemed offense like Kyle Shanahan has in San Francisco. It's so funny. I just think, yeah, well, we never saw him get rid of the ball quickly. And, you know, can you, those little, t- like RPOs and quick play yeah. actions. It's like, 
that's the easy stuff. Anybody can do the easy stuff if you if you scheme it up for them and you present those throws to them. It's the hard stuff that you have to worry about. And he's somebody that consistently does the hard stuff. So it's almost as if we're thinking about this backwards when it, the order of operations and how you should be talking about it. So you hit quarterback, receiver, running back. Safety is a position we haven't really talked about on the show at all, just because the class in general compared to other positions is a little bit on the lower end. I wanted to ask you, is there a safety or two that you think this is a scheme fit on this team or in this type of defense that just makes sense to me? Well, Richard Graham from Central Florida is very interesting. You know, doesn't have elite traits at the position. You can see them on tape. He's a former two-star recruit. He's a football player, Robert. He's a guy I'd like to coach. He can play split safety, quarters cover two. Now, kid, does he have elite range in the post? No, but he can spin back to the post. He can spin downhill. He's got better cover down ability than I anticipated when he turned on the film. Very patient. Keeps his shoulders square. He's got enough short area juice there to close in the football. And again, we I use the term physical element a lot, but I think it matters. He brings a physical element to the run game. He's a willing tackle. He's a physical tackle. Wrap up and drive his legs. That wins in the NFL. That wins. You look at, like we talked about, Chicago, Denver, the LA Rams this past season. The LA Chargers this upcoming season with Brandon Staley. Those split safety heavy defenses that want safeties that can drive top down in the football, great angles to the ball, like we discussed earlier, take away inbreakers and crossers, but also that ability to play as an overhang. That's what the league's going to is the safety need to be able to play as that overhang defender and base and sub package when you drop to the curl or hook, explode in the ball with speed, be a physical striker on contact and create disruption at the second level as well. Richie Grant's one of those guys. I'm going to break down Andre Cisco on the show. From Syracuse. Now he's coming off a knee injury, but he does have post range. He's got split field range as well. But you have to look at the on the ball production. He had 13 career interceptions in college, and I think around 22, 24 games. Uh, you know, so a smaller sample size, but a lot of high end ball production. He's got excellent range, and that's someone I want in my defense and want in my secondary. Bring up another name, Elijah Molden from Washington. He's listed as a corner. I think he's more of that, you know, that slot safety now, Robert, that we see in the NFL when you play sure. three safety sub packages and a nickel or dime because they can do so many different things. And number one thing with him is the sense of urgency he plays. That's the first thing I look for, whether coaching or watching tape. Are you urgent? Do you play fast? Are you willing to strike people on contact? Do you create disruption on the ball? Can I utilize you in different ways? I think Molden can be that slot safety that you can blitz off the edge, that can play in space, that can drive top down on the football, but also a very instinctual player. Because I don't know what he ran the 40, and uh, these 40 times this year are wild anyway, so <laughs> I don't really care. I ran, I ran a 4-4-3, according to the, uh, to the unofficial times. Right, I don't really care what he runs in the 40. I could see that he plays fast on take. Those are just a couple guys, but it is a good safety class. And with the – you know, the direction the league is going, Robert, there's a fit for guys. A guy yeah. late in the draft, Damar Hamlin from Pitt. Okay, Damar Hamlin's probably going to be a day three prospect. He played split safety coverage at Pitt. We understand that. He can play top down. A lot of ball production in college. Very physical and willing tackler when he's running the alleys. Going to give you uh, immediate upgrade on your coverage units on special teams. There's guys that are going to be drafted in day two and day three, especially the safety position that can play a long time in this league because of the direction, because of the schemes we're seeing right now. I think that the Jordan Fullers of this class, whoever yeah. they might be, those types Great of example. guys. Do you think because of those little tiny nuances and how difficult it is to unearth who might be good and who might not be just because it's not as evident because the physical traits aren't as important, do you think it's become the most difficult position to evaluate on defense over the last few years as the league has shifted a little bit? 
I think it's difficult because it's hard to find safeties who can truly cover a slot receiver. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why you're safety. <laughs> okay. Safeties usually are, are, are longer in terms of their length they're, you know, they, and they're usually a little bit more tight hit. They have functional hip tightness. That's why you're playing safety instead of corner. I think it is a hard position to evaluate because of one, like we talked about earlier, if you're going to play a single high system, it's far, it's hard to find someone with that elite post range, eye discipline and high football intelligence that can consistently get a break in the ball and close those seams in the end. But if you see him, you can see him. That's yeah. evident. That's not hard to, you don't have to dig to find that guy. You can watch that guy instantly and be like, he has the range to do it. But because that's become not as prevalent, it almost feels like you have to dig more into the nuances of guys that can play the position because those high-end physical traits are the things that are obvious. Right, and you also want to find guys who have versatility for your sub-packages, right? Yep. What can they do in sub? Are they just a deep half defender, right? Or do they have forward ability? I mean, when I, look, when I use the term forward ability, Robert, I mean, someone who's not going to be, you know, matching to a corner out from the seam, you know, and backpedaling and opening, showing the, the flexibility in their hips to, to stay on top of the route. Someone who plays downhill. Okay, because those guys have value now, too, because you can use your safeties as almost dime linebackers now, right? They can beat that overhang defender. They can drop down or spin down from a two deep alignment and play the hook zone. Different things they can do that allows them to use that forward ability because that's when they're at their best. And they don't have to cover deep because that gets them in trouble. And that's one of the other things I think that makes it difficult to evaluate is that now with so many more three safety looks and so many more different roles ascribed to that position, there almost is more versatility and you have to look for different things. It's just so interesting how the position has shifted and how that necessitates the, a change in the way that we evaluate it and the way that you scout it. I just think that those little tiny shifts over time are just so fun. And it's just the way the game is kind of alive in this way that is why we get excited talking about it. So a couple more spots I wanted to hit. Is there a corner that jumped out to you, either a team or a system that you just think perfectly fits? Uh, J.C. Horn, Arizona, number 16. J.C. Horn, I think right now, would probably be you know considered a top 15 grade. Okay, in that area, uh, because of the man coverage traits, uh, he's got a long frame. He's ultra competitive on tape, Rob. When he turned the tape, he's ultra competitive. Can play inside. I watched Kyle Pitts. I watched him throw Kyle Pitts on his ass earlier today. It was pretty yeah, funny. Great <laughs> rep versus Kyle Pitts when Kyle yeah. Pitts beats him on a on a back shoulder fade ball. That yep. is, we're gonna show that on the show. That's what you want to see. It's best versus best, right? Yeah, best versus best. And J.C. Horn, I think, projects very well in a man heavy system. That's what you have in Arizona. Very high man coverage rate last year. Also ranked top five in pressure last year in terms of blitz rate. So what are you doing there? You're trying to add man coverage defenders who can play single high cover one, can also play blitz man technique. That's what J.C. Horn gets you in the, in the competitive traits. You see it when he has to make a play in the football as well, especially inside the red zone. There's a couple of clips. If you watch the Auburn tape from last year, when he's matched up on a slot fade, he will elevate and play the football at the highest point. He's an ultra-competitive tour. I think he needs to be a stronger tackler. But here's the thing, Robert. is As long as you're a willing tackler, you can work with that. You can teach more technique. You can teach them better angles to cut off the ball on the edge. You can teach them how to use their hands to get off stock blocks and attack the outside thigh pad of a running back. You can teach them that thing. As long as the willingness is there to want to do it, I'm fine with that as a coach. And you see that with J.C. Horn. He is a willing tackler. 
I want to say he had three pass breakups inside the 10 yard line in that Auburn game. He did. And several different times he's getting his head around and getting his hands on the ball. He's fun. We're going to talk about corners a little bit later on the show with Mike Renner, and I want to dig into some of it. But would you say, based on the conversation we were having earlier about scheming guys open, about all of the motion, about the stacks and bunches, do you think that press man traits are less important now because there are fewer press man opportunities based on alignment and the way that offenses are playing? No, I do. Th- I think they're they're important when you're talking about a backside X receiver. Okay. Okay. You're going to match up to a DK Metcalf. You know, he's a lot of times plays a backside X. What I mean by that is his trips to one side of the field, usually to the field and into the boundary off the hash mark. We call it the, you know, the boundary X receiver. Those are going to be true press situations inside the plus 20 yard line. In addition to having the press man ability, you can be able to motor or mirror, I call it be able to play in space when someone gets a free release off a pick or a rub or out of those bunch or stack sets. You need to be able to do that. The short area speed to close at the hip of the wide receiver and the ability to undercut those crossers. How many times did we see that a couple of years ago from Stefan Gilmore in New England when he had to work over traffic and then undercut and make a play on the football? So I still think press man, everyone would love to have it, but you can't just solely be a press man corner. You're not going to play press man every snap. They're going to scheme you, too, if you're a high-level press man corner. They're going to want to get their guys free off the line of scrimmage. And you are going to play some too deep. You're going to have to be able to jam, play in the flat, tackle in the run game, do everything that's involved with that position. But still, having those traits, and they're hard to find. And if you have a good one, it does give you a defensive matchup advantage when you can play either a backside X receiver or line up to someone in a pressure situation, a high-level game situation, get your hands on them. It's interesting because I I don't know nearly as much as people who understand the nuances of the position, but when the JC Horn to me is a good example where in my mind, my first thought would be if you play press man, you could play anything. But if you rely on that physicality and you rely on bullying people around and you don't have that secondary movement ability to run with guys or to turn and everything else, that's man coverage. It's just not press man coverage. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a little bit of a gap there that before I had some conversation with some defensive coaches, I wouldn't have really understood. My thought would be press man. That's it. If you can do that, you can do everything. But there Mm -hmm. are tiny little differences and gaps between them that I think are necessary now as we talk about more and more teams scheming guys into space. Right, and playing off-man coverage is, is extremely tough. You're going to line it usually around seven yards. You're going to read through this three-step. So one, two, three, if the ball is coming out of your position because you have that cushion already to drive top down. Then you're going to have to pedal. You have to pedal, show the ability to open and maintain or stay in phase with the wide receiver. And outside of the three-step game, every route breaks between 12 and 15 yards. So that's that sweet spot you know in your head where you're going to have to transition. And it is hard to do that. There's a lot of high-cut corners that have a little pause when they come out of that transition because they're just longer, taller corners. That's expected. You understand that. But you're talking about the two top guys, press man corners. I think they are playing better or higher level in terms of Horn and Sertan at the line of scrimmage than they are as off-man corners. Awesome. That's all I got. I I sincerely appreciate it. This is a fantastic conversation as it always is with you. I always love chatting with you about this stuff. Please guys go check out all the stuff they're going to be doing on the matchup show over the next two weeks on ESPN. It is invaluable work. I watch it every single week during the season even if it requires being DVR'd, which is a conversation you, you and I have had many times. Mm-hmm. But now it's in prime time, so you don't have to worry about that. You guys should check it out. Matt Bowen, thank you very much for the time, my friend. We will talk again very soon. All right, Robert. Thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. All right, I'm thrilled now to welcome my buddy, PFF's lead NFL draft analyst, very fancy title, Mike Renner. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Robert. I appreciate you having me on, buddy. Of course. I could not imagine going through an entire draft cycle and not chatting with you about something. We landed on the cornerbacks. You know, We've gone through a couple specific positions with Nate so far. We talked about the edge rushers last week with Ben Solak. I'm not going to do every position, but especially with this group, it seems strange to not dig into the corners. You know, there are certain drafts where you're not going to have a top 10 corner. There aren't that many high profile guys at the position. I mean, sometimes you have the one scattered guy like Akuda, and then after that, it's not that exciting. This group, though, there are a couple players that could be top 10 picks, could be top 15 picks. Some really interesting discussion points about others, whether it's injuries and what you can expect from guys, everything else. So in order to fully form our draft coverage here, I felt like we needed to talk about this group. And it's one that I know you find particularly intriguing just based on how many different guys and their strengths and weaknesses. I've heard you talk about it. It just seems like a group worth digging into. Yeah. And I always love scouting cornerbacks because of kind of what you mentioned there, that it's like there's one like scheme matters. It's one of the most like describing who these guys are and what their strengths and weaknesses are actually like matters at the next level because the totally. guy can suck in one scheme, but be an impact player in a completely different one. Uh, and so it's, it's a position that you kind of got to get right and get the fit right or else you're not like that guy might not succeed at his recommended or at his destination. Obviously you talked about Akuda. He goes to a pure man heavy scheme with the Detroit Lions and kind of you know has some bumpy roads there year one after everyone's pumping him up as this you know elite elite sort of prospect. So uh, 
I, I do think it's a position that you really have to dig into, really have to get a feel for all what these guys bring to the table before you can really say, you know, oh, this is cornerback one, this is cornerback two, that sort of thing. How long have you done this full time? How many years have you been going through every every guy in the class? Uh, this is my second draft of really the full okay. draft cycle doing that. So, yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you, how have your opinions on what you're looking for in corners changed, but you haven't been doing it that long, so they might not have changed that much. Well, we ha- I, so I have been doing draft coverage, but in a limited sort of fashion for the last sure. six years. So it definitely has changed in that you, the size and physicality matters. Like the guys who are the shorter undersized, there's a reason teams have these height cutoffs, size cutoffs, length cutoffs for cornerback positions because it's just very easy to, once you get to the NFL level, to look like a different player when the wide receivers you're going up against are all you know 20 pounds bigger than the guys you were seeing in college. It's funny. We had this exact conversation with Nate last week on the show. And that that position is what we threw out because you have a couple yeah. different guys. You know, Senquence Golson was somebody we talked about. And there were a couple others where it's like Greedy Williams was a little bit undersized. You'd think coverage skills and movement skills and everything else would be first and foremost the most important thing for corners. But if you don't have that physicality, you can look like a completely different guy. So I think that's a, it's a really good thing to point out. I also we've gone through and ranked some of these positions on some of the other shows, but like you said, because it's different flavors at this spot, I didn't want to do that. I kind of wanted to do some superlatives, just throw out a few categories and then you can give me your pick and we can use that as a way to dig into these guys a little bit. So first and foremost, your safest bet, your guy that if you're picking him, whether it's in the first round or wherever, you know, essentially what you're going to get. This is the guy you'll be able to rely on in some form for the next eight to 10 years? To me, it's Patrick Chetan. And that's why he's top cornerback on our board. You've seen three years of him as a starter in an Alabama defense that's obviously a Nick Saban coach, similar to what you can expect to see him do at the NFL level. A ton of press on his tape, against good high-level competition. He may not be everything you want at the position, but I think the body of work, the physical tools are enough to where this guy's going to be a good cornerback at the NFL level. And obviously the bloodlines of his dad being Patrick Chetan. Like he's going to be a solid cornerback. Is he going to be Richard Sherman? Is he going to be, you know, Jerry Alexander? I don't think so. I don't think he's that level, but I think you're getting just a very quality cornerback who's somewhat scheme independent, obviously probably lean him more towards a press man sort of team, but I don't think he has to go to that sort of scheme to be productive. I just think he's a very smart uh, and talented football player that the safest bet in this class. He looks like a robot when he plays. And I say that yeah. in a good way. He's he's like a cornerback robot. It's just how f- fundamentally sound he is, the technique he plays with all the time, how calm he plays. You know, there are some guys that when they play a lot of press man, they look like they're playing a lot of press man. They look like they're in a hurry. There's an urgency to the way that they play. They really want to assert the physicality, all of that. He doesn't feel the need to play like that, if that makes sense. And I think that's why he's impressive. And that's why there aren't a lot of mistakes on the tape. When you say that you're not sure if he can be a Jair Alexander type, where are the gaps to you? Where are those tiny little edges that you feel like he might not have? He's not particularly twitchy. Like his closing bursts, you saw guys get steps on him, like Tennessee's Josh Palmer got like a step on him and then trying to make that up down the football field. You didn't really see that ability on tape. The hips aren't quite there, like an off coverage, zone coverage, his ability to flip and turn and the sort of breaks on the football, just not at that elite, that high level of 
like I said, the twitch just isn't quite there to where Jai Alexander can go any direction at any particular time in a blink of an eye. Like Richard Sherman is 6'3 and just dominates guys physically with that length. I don't think we saw either of those things necessarily from Sertan. Like you said, super patient and super, uh, his game will translate to the NFL because he's not overly physical, taking advantage of college's you know, lack of legal contact. He is playing press man like you'd have to in the NFL, but I still don't think he's at that level of physicality, even when he wants to get physical to be able to play like Richard Sherman. So I, I just, I'm not sure you're getting that super high end, but I think you're getting, like I said, quality, the safest bet in this class. Were you surprised at how well he tested? And you say that he gets guys run away from him a little bit. If he doesn't have that twitchiness, I mean, you look at his testing numbers and they're out of this world, especially for a guy his size. So do you feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect there? I was. Now he didn't do, he didn't do the cone or shuttle, right? Like he just did the, yeah, it's, the it's just the stuff ones. where, you know, he's going to look good. <laughs> so I would be curious to see what he would have looked like in those. And it's always like, oh, you didn't do those drills. Oh, I had a hammy come up halfway through. Like everyone, yeah, it's like a little stuff. After you posted your 4 4 3 40 is when yeah. the hammy came up. I still was a little surprised. I would have pegged him as more of like a low 4 5s guy, which mm-hmm. maybe that's a combined 4 5, a pro day 4 4 or 5. That, that probably makes sense. All right. So that was the safest bet. Who do you think is the biggest risk reward consideration here? The guy that might have a really high upside, but also there's a really low, low side. There's kind of two guys that come to mind, one for actual on-field, one for off-field. Caleb Farley, the on-field is electric. He would have been cornerback one for us here at PFF if just he just had back surgery. And it was a second back surgery with the same injury, a microdiscectomy, which is breaking your back and like having those uh, microdiscectomies doesn't heal. I was talking to my dad's North Bay surgeon. He's just like, that's just going to be an issue your entire life once you have a surgery like that. There's no getting back to 100% from that. That's just going to be something that could pop up at a moment's notice any given time over the next four years. And he said, you know, over half of people with back surgery have back surgery again within the next four years. And that's just... It doesn't get better. That's one of those spots that it's just going to be progressively worse. Yes. And so you're going to draft that guy in the first round when he's more likely than not going to have another back surgery in the next four years. And especially at a position where you're tackling, you know, maybe offensively you can get away with it if you're a receiver. You're not getting hit more than a few times a game. This guy's got to stick his nose in it four or five times. And like, that's a big part of the game. So that's worrisome. And the other one to me is Kelvin Joseph from Kentucky, just because his tape really is a roller coaster. Like physical tools wise, you think he ran the high four twos or low four threes. You see breaks on his tape that are just from standstill, him getting up to full speed, like in a blink of an eye, but really raw. Obviously had some rumored drug issues why he left LSU after his freshman year, transferred to Kentucky in the first place. So that guy is just a very boomer bust, fits that bill entirely from what we've seen from him already on tape. Why do you like Farley more than Sertan, independent of the health issues, just in terms of the on-field stuff? So he is 6'2", 207, and maybe his top speed is the fastest I think of any of these cornerbacks in the class. Like, Watching him move at 6'2", 207 is fucking bonkers. Like there, there was a play against Miami in 2019 where he spun around back to the post and had a PBU. And just like that, those movement skills beyond even the speed for somebody that that's that big is crazy. Like he moves so incredibly well in all facets of the game, especially for somebody that size. It's not Patrick Peterson, but it's, about as close as you'll see to a Patrick Peterson. Patrick Peterson's in his own stratosphere in terms of what he can do physically. But that's the kind of athlete we're dealing with just in terms of pure 
high-end athleticism that Farley brings to the table. And then ball skills, like he locates the ball really well then when he is down the field, is not getting lost and that sort of thing. So didn't play a ton of press man on his tape at Virginia Tech, but when he did, I thought you saw a guy who just any scheme he really could have executed at the NFL level or could execute at the NFL level. He just needs to stay healthy. Do you guys, I'm not sure what sort of insight you'd have into this. When I was watching some of him today, he's playing press on the line of scrimmage, but he's not jamming guys all the time. So he's not using his hand. Yeah. So in terms of, but it's not, he's almost not, he's not bailing out instantly. It's almost like he's mirroring a guy off the line, just not jamming him at all. So do you know if that's just not how they coach it or he's not comfortable doing that? Have you guys talked to anybody about that? We probably should have asked him that, but we also like you barely saw him even at the lined up getting at the line of scrimmage in general. Like that, that was a rare to see him even at the line. So it may have just been comfortability for a guy like that. If you're only doing it a handful of times to really go up there and press, maybe probably a little worried about getting just toast at the line if you're not used to that. Yeah, it was interesting watching it because it, it it's, it was strange to reconcile because you're watching him stand there, but his hands are at his waist. And it's like, all right, well, what's, why is he doing this? So it's interesting because his ability to mirror guys is impressive, but yeah. he's, it's other guys don't have that. That's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. If you have one guy that's playing press and really using his hands a lot, pushing people around, and one guy who's comfortable mirroring somebody all the way down the field, it's, just, it's almost like you're watching two different things. It's hard to compare those two guys. So in that press man conversation, is there somebody in this group that you think, that's the best press man corner. I just think that is his strongest trait. If we put him in that scheme, he's going to be fine. Yeah, this has to be, it's got to be JC Horn, the South Carolina cornerback. He's what, 6'1, a little over 200. That's what he does on tape at South Carolina. When he's not doing that, it's an issue. Like that's, if you're drafting him and not putting him in press man, or even just press in general, you're, you're wasting by far and away his biggest strength. He is just even not only just like physical wise, the ability and strength to do it he has, but it's also a mentality thing with him. Like the Mm -hmm. way he attacks guys is what you want and what succeeds at the NFL level. He's not going up there and just mirroring he's going up there and he's getting a hand on you and he's going to keep his hands on you. And he's going to try to take you like off the football field before you can even get involved in the route. So that's sometimes to his own detriment. Oh yeah. I mean, he got five penalties in like six games this past year. And again, like we mentioned, College doesn't have legal contact. So those penalties are like real deal. You're actually doing some bad things on tape there to get five penalties. If he didn't, if he plays like he did this past year in the NFL next year, he's going to be Brandon Browner. Like he's going to get flagged 20 plus times. So obviously you're going to have to coach a little bit out of him, change the style up a little bit, but I think it's easier to reel a guy in than try to get a guy to play the way he does. Absolutely. I think it's, you watch it and there were two plays that stick out to me. One from the Florida game, one from the Auburn game. He gets flagged on a backside slant in the Florida game when he's all over the guy with this outside hand. And then in the Auburn game, exact same alignment, exact same route. And he plays it well and he gets a PBU. It's like the little tiny gaps between what is okay and what is not. If he can somehow live in that area, it's going to be great. Are you a little bit concerned about how scattered he can look when he's not getting his hands on somebody because there's less fluidity when I watch. And again, I don't know exactly what I'm watching, but to me, when you watch him, he doesn't look nearly as comfortable or nearly as patient or as calm when he's not getting his hands on people as a guy like Sertan might. No, I I mean, that is, like I said, if you're drafting him to play anything other than press, you're, you're just doing it. He's not going to look like the guy. He looks like a different Yeah cornerback altogether. And I think he's another guy who didn't do, he didn't do the shuttle or the cone at, at his pro day. He did the, you know, the 40, the vertical broad, and then just like doesn't do the shuttle or the cone. Like he's not particularly fluid, 
but you're going to be able to get your hands on guys. Or if you're putting him in that situation, he's going to do well enough to get his hands on guys at the line of scrimmage that he might be a little up and down at the beginning of his career, but like he has the physicality and the physical tools to live in that sort of area where that's your bread and butter. And that's what you do. Do you feel like the him and Kyle Pitts matchup is one of the more fun back and forths? I know there's only a couple snaps, but in terms of top end guys in this yeah. draft, I'm sure that those few plays were one of the highlights of all the stuff you got to dig into over the last few months. It was great. You got to see him against Pitts, even though like limited, he hopped it out like midseason. You got to see him against Pitts. You got to see him against Seth Williams of Auburn, where he just mm-hmm. ate Seth Williams lunch. And then you got to see him against Elijah Moore. Will miss. Like they dropped him down in the slot because Elijah was killing him early in the game. And they're like, okay, you know, we got to do something else because those guys usually played him and Mukwama were usually their outside guys. And then they dropped him down in the slot. And so you got to see him actually go, you know, press man in the slot a good deal on that one. And Moore actually kind of got him a few times. That was a little worrisome. But yeah, he, he had some fun back and forth matchups. And he followed Williams into the slot too against Auburn a couple different times I saw. Yeah, I think he just tracked Williams in that that whole game. Yeah. yeah. So that was fun. I mean, it's cool to see that because there are some guys, I know Farley stayed on one side of the field. I want to say Sertan did too, right? Was Sertan would the- drop to the slot on third downs, I think. It's okay. All right. Yeah. I was always I'm just thinking about watching him at the top of my screen all of the time on the left yeah. side. But it seemed like Horn moves around, and that's just one of those things. If you can see a guy do that, it's just easier to project, even if we think Farley in the right situation could when you haven't seen him do it then there is some mystery there so uh, these are all all the top guys obviously is there somebody a little bit off the radar whether it's a second round third round guy that you just think could come in day one be reliable starter that you like now after last year's cornerback class i can't predict anyone to be a reliable starter (laughs) uh, coming in you know like how many were there that were even close to reliable starters coming in like i think luxurious need the chief's corner was like the only one who and he went in the fourth Did round. not just get torched at some point in time over the course of his rookie season. So I'm not going to predict anyone maybe year one, but there's some guys I like, I guess, a little later on in the draft class. Uh, the first one is Benjamin St. Juice from Minnesota. Um, he's six foot three, like 205 pounds, I want to say. And he ran a six, six, three count. Those are some impressive numbers for a tall cornerback. You just don't see tall cornerbacks with feet quite like him. Now That's he's amazing. not fast, but I think he ran four five five as pro day, but I think, you know, in a, you know, whether the Seattle cover three or kind of a, a scheme that allows you to play up and down more so than really side to side or really have to track across the field. I, I think he can be a weapon because that length and that size does not come around often in that feet. And he's still kind of relatively new to high level football. I think he's from Canada. Uh, it's only played a couple of years at Minnesota. And so he went to the senior bowl and actually looked really good in the one-on-ones, just straight playing man coverage there uh, throughout that week of practice. So I'm a big fan of his game. And then the other guy I'll mention here is UCF's Tay Gowan. He's only played one year of college football. He started off in Miami, Ohio, um, ended up transferring to UCF, plays in 2019, allows a f- 20 of 50 targets, only 40% completion percentage, really kind of locks down his side of the field. And UCF plays a ton of press, ton of man coverage there. He's six foot one, 195 pounds with legit speed. He was running with Simi Fajoko, the big Stanford wide receiver, who's about as tough in the, the vertical tree as you'll see in college football with like four, four speed at 220. And he's running right on his hip with them in that game against Stanford. But then opts out this past season. You got to see one year of him against somewhat low level college football tape. And so it's tough to really know what you're getting with him. But I just don't think those two guys I mentioned, because again, size matters, height matters, length matters. Those guys have it. 
and you just don't see feet like those guys have taller cornerbacks. It doesn't come around every day. So I think those are the two guys I'd say with their sort of combinations of that are guys I'd be targeting you know, on day three for sure. So we talked with Matt Bowen before you came on about scheme fits at every position. I was wanting to ask you just in relation to that, are there a couple guys in this group that you just see them in the uniform? It's like, this makes sense to me, this marriage, if I wanted to put these together. I'm going to go Homer here. And it's the Packers, the new scheme, obviously bringing over from the Rams, the Brendan Staley, the way they play their kind of off zone, heavy defense. And it's Asante Samuel Jr., Florida State cornerback to that scheme. I just think anywhere Asante Samuel can play off and go through, see through the receiver to the quarterback and to the ball is a scheme I want him in. I think just and like that's that. obviously what the Rams do. And that's like, he is exceptional at knowing, you know, breaking on balls underneath him in terms of just knowing when to take those chances and when not to, and just the speed with which he can get there. So that's a scheme I would love to see him in. So I guess that would be either there, Chargers now, uh, or the Rams. Just if he goes to one of those, I would love that. Do you feel like watching the Rams last year, knowing the Packers are probably going to do something similar this year, you can count them. I mean, just what I mean, I think then that's it's an interesting. I was having a conversation with the head coach about this recently about cross pollination of defensive schemes in the NFL and how we just don't see them as much as we see with offense. With offense, you can have something catch fire and you know, everybody starts running and everyone copies yeah. it. It feels like this is one of the first years where that's happening with defense, whether it's now Green Bay, the Rams, Chargers. Broncos. Uh, I think the Lions might do something with Aubrey Pleasant. You think about all the different people from that tree now infiltrating throughout the league. Do you feel like that type of defense and it becoming more prevalent influence the way that you watch guys or do you think it will moving forward? Were you trying to pick up on different stuff because we're seeing teams play a little bit of a different style throughout the league now? Yeah, I think there were. I mean, the last time we really saw this was you know, Seattle in the cover three. Yep. Legion of Boom kind of just Quinn, Dan Quinn leaves, uh, Gus Bradley, all of them kind of proliferate that across the NFL. And I think that's, this is the next version of that. You'll obviously see Belichick disciples, you know, run some similar stuff to what Belichick does in their man coverage. Um, but yeah, I think this is kind of the new wave of defenses. And you're going to see more guys projected to, uh, you know, the zone skill set or kind of the more instinctual skill set that succeeds in defenses like that may be more coveted going forward. And, and we're talking about the guys with size and speed who are better fits for those press heavy defenses. I don't think size necessarily matters at the cornerback position, safety position necessarily in those. Cause you're not, you're not impacting the run game. You're not coming up and pressing nearly as much. And so when that's the case and you're just playing off coverage, a lot of times uh, you just prioritize then, like I said, instinctual cornerbacks, guys who see the game well, because like Darius Williams was five, eight, whatever, having a yeah. big year for the Rams last year. Not even and Troy Hill like, isn't like, put together. Like he's taller, exactly. but he's skinny. Yeah. Like those guys don't play like they, they won't even see the field in certain schemes across the NFL. You're just not even going to try to trot them out there, but they go to the Rams and obviously have career years last year. So yeah, I do think it's going to change the body types or whatever that you're looking for of certain defenses. It also feels like if we're talking in accordance with the types of receivers that are coming into the league, think about all the five, eight oh, yeah. space guys that you're going to have to cover now. It almost feels like having those guys to play, have to play off, but are a little bit more comfortable in space with movement skills is more important now than it absolutely was 10 years ago. So just one kind of influences the other in these ways that are really obvious to see. Yeah. And man, the amount of like five, nine receivers in this class 
that it can run like low four fours to high four threes. It's just, I've never seen anything like it. Is there anybody in that group that you feel like could consistently play outside that you feel like is not just a slot guy? Because that's the conversation about Mm -hmm. post round one in this class, right? We have a lot of slot guys, but not a lot of outside guys. Do you feel like there could be a team that could find value in an outside receiver, in a smaller receiver that they could put outside more consistently? Yeah, I think there's like there is a track record of guys now. It's not everyone, but Brandon Cooks, Emmanuel Sanders, um, obviously Tyree Kill, but like he's a different. Don't even he's a different category in his own right. Um, Tyler Lockett, even like there there are guys that succeed five nine, five ten, hundred eighty, hundred eighty five pounds are all kind of where those guys thrive. I think Emmanuel Sanders might be five eleven, but like still on the smaller end, you've seen guys succeed on the outside. So. I don't think it's impossible. The one I would highlight of this year's receiver class is Elijah Moore. Obviously that tape he put up against JC Horn, a big reason because of that. It's like, what do you worry about with those guys? You worry about them just getting their butt kicked by a bigger, by a guy who's 30 pounds heavier than them on the outside. They're just getting pressed entirely to the sideline, not being able to, you know, not being able to separate down the field. So that's what you worry about. But I think Elijah Moore quicks and strength. Like he has both of those despite being on the smaller side. Like 180, um, but he did like 17 bench reps at 180, which is pretty good. So uh, that's the guy I'd say is if I were to say anyone could succeed as the outside wire receiver, it'd be him. Awesome. All right, buddy. That's all we got. I sincerely appreciate you nope. doing this. It's always good to chat with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to, I'm sure you're looking forward to getting some sleep here in, in the next couple of weeks. I'm sure it's been a long <laughs> couple months. I was going to say, I'm not going to sleep for a few weeks. So yeah, I will yeah. <laughs> look forward to that after the draft for sure. The May is going to be good to you. I'm looking forward to it for you. So always good to chat with you, man. Mike Renner, please go check out all of his work on PFF. Uh, The draft guide they do is fantastic. I feel like I shouldn't be saying that because we also have a draft guide, but I read both and both of them are excellent. So please go check out both of them. Mike, always good to chat with you, bud. Talk to you later. Sure, Rob. Thanks for having me on, man. All right, guys, that's all we got today. Thank you so much to Mike and Matt for stopping by. As a reminder, live draft show, April 29th, after the 15th pick of the draft, me and Nate are going to be coming to you live together from Chicago. Lindsay is going to be joining us as well as Dane Brugler providing analysis. So be on the lookout for that over the next couple of weeks. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. I would really appreciate if you guys did that. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. We have so many great draft pieces coming. Our draft coverage has been fantastic. Also, it's the way to get Dane Brugler's draft guide. I don't know how you could possibly get ready for the draft without that. So please go check that out. We'll be back tomorrow with a very special guest. I don't want to spoil it yet, but I'm very excited for that show. Really looking forward to it. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show.